So let's open with a word of prayer and we'll dig into the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you, Lord. And we do ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher tonight. We don't want the words of man or the opinions of man, but we ask that the word of God would go forth with power. Lord, give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to each and every one of us tonight. We thank you for the word of God that you wrote it down for us. And we thank you for the examples we find in tonight's text, not examples to follow, but examples to learn from. So Lord, we ask, man would decrease again, spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, so Lord willing, we're going to finish 2 Chronicles tonight. First and 2 Chronicles only took us about 15 months, because if you teach a chapter a week, uh, that's 36 chapters in Chronicles, that's 36, and then we had... Uh, First Chronicles as well, but this is not a race, amen? We want to learn from it and grow in it. So last week, we saw the death of Josiah. He was the final godly king of Judah. As we've mentioned many times, Second Chronicles was written to the people that were leaving, fleeing from, or being, have been let go to go back to Jerusalem after 70 years in bondage. And we'll see that at the end of this chapter, where they're being let go by King Cyrus. Now, they're going to go home and they will use this as a history lesson, First and Second Chronicles, of what to expect, what God had done there in the past. And so as we finish Second Chronicles, we're going to see how Judah as a nation begins to crumble and is going to be taken apart piece by piece and then drug off into Babylonian captivity. Remember, if you were here back in First Kings and earlier before that, and we saw the temple being built by King Solomon and all of its glory... Well, tonight's text, we're going to see it destroyed. We're going to see all these wonderful things that God had done and, all, and so many of these things falling apart because it, what it comes right down to is that when you don't have faithful people leading God's people, when you don't have God's people continue to serve the Lord, when people get distracted by the things of this world, they're headed toward a path to destruction. This book should, this last chapter should serve as a warning for all of us, an object lesson for those, and for, it, would, it would for the people returning to Jerusalem, and it should for all of us. So when Judah, God's chosen people, honored the Lord and worshiped him and were obedient, God blessed them as a nation. We saw how God's been blessing them for hundreds and hundreds of years, but we've seen through the Chronicles that most of the kings, all of the kings in Israel were wicked and evil, and Israel's already been taken captive. Now Judah has had good kings and evil kings, and they're going to finish up tonight with it's either three or four evil kings, and, and then we're going to see Judah taken captive and the end of Judah for 70 years. So in this final chapter, we're going to see the reign and then captivity of several evil and ungodly kings, culminating with the fall of Jerusalem and Judah. And while they were God's chosen people and a nation of promise, God would not and will not condone or tolerate open rebellion against him and his word. And that's a message for us as individuals, and that's a message for our country. Amen? If we shake our fists at God, if we walk in open rebellion to God, if we mock God, if we curse God, if we despise him, if we deny his word, then righteous judgment righteously should come. Their idolatrous worship and outright disobedience resulted in God's righteous judgment. And again, God's grace is not God's permission to sin and to live a life of open rebellion. And again, if you choose to live that way, you can be assured of the righteous judgment of God. So if you have your outline, grab it. I titled the message, when the world is bent toward evil, run to Jesus. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't in this chapter, but the applications are. 
The applications are we're going to be looking at a nation that has just gotten so hard and each king is getting worse and the people are walking completely away from the Lord. And I feel that way. You guys watch the news at night? You know, the Bible says in the last days, lawlessness will abound. And we just see lawlessness, things I never thought I would see. Entire cities where all the stores are closing down because all of the theft that's taking place and they're losing so much money and it's all falling apart. And then nothing does anything, no one does anything about it. And the behavior that you allow is the behavior you create. And you know what? While that lawlessness may abound and the world may do nothing, God will do something. And God will bring righteous judgment. So when we're in the midst of it, and I believe that we are to a large, in a large extent. So when the world is bent toward evil, run to Jesus. First of all, fellowship or rebellion, choose one. We're gonna, you hear me use that context a lot. And what it really means is that as believers, or even as every individual, you're either in fellowship with God or you're walking in rebellion against God. And there's no other place. So you're either walking in rebellion against God or you're walking in fellowship with him. And with the previous King Josiah, they had fellowship with God. Josiah, remember, they rediscovered the word. He read it, and then he taught it to everyone. And then he reestablished, the, the wor- reestablished worship. And so praise God for that. But again, after, now he's died, and his sons are taking over, and his grandsons, and later his brother. And as they do, they're going to turn away from the things of God. Point number two. When the world is crashing down all around you, run to the Lord, don't run from him. That's where I got the outline for the text. He doesn't always rescue you from the fire, but he will stand with you in it. So as believers, it's so easy to get caught up in the things of the world. It's so easy to get distracted. And may we not be influenced by the world, no matter what's going on in the world. Again, as we see in Revelation, in the end, God wins. Number three, without repentance, there is no restoration. We can go to church 10,000 times and not be saved. You can read through your Bible 10 times and not be saved. I find that highly doubtful, but it can happen, right? Because reading your Bible, wonderful thing, doesn't save you by itself. Going to church, we should do that, doesn't save you by itself. You can sing praise songs, doesn't save you. And we're going to see that even you know, the temple itself, we're going to see its destruction in tonight's text. And it reminds me of so much of the world where you have buildings that used to be filled with the Holy Spirit, where God's word was being taught, where people are being saved. And when the Holy Spirit is removed, that movement becomes a memorial and their buildings become monuments. You walk into these buildings, you're like, oh, look how beautiful this building is. It is deader than a doornail. And sadly, that's what happens in the temple in tonight's text. Once God is not there, it's nothing more than a building. And guys, the same is true. The church isn't a building. Obviously, we meet in a tent. But the church is not a building. The church is the body of Christ. We're part of the church, and we belong to him. So without repentance, there is no restoration. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Number four, regardless of the reason you choose to reject God, the results are going to be the same. Whether you have 500 reasons why you don't believe in God, whether you've got, you know, bad things that have happened in your life and you're mad at God because of it, or because you got caught up in something and a teacher is confused, whatever reason you choose to rebel against God, there is no excuse. And the results are always going to be the same. And my prayer is that none of us would fall into that trap of rejecting the Lord. We're seeing more and more pastors, more and more Christians coming out saying, I walked away from my faith. And here's what I would say. You didn't never know the Lord or you wouldn't have walked away to begin with. Amen. Number five, 
There is no remedy for rejecting God's word and God's grace. That, that word is actually used in the text. There's no remedy. There comes to a place where there's, there's no hope and there's no answer for you anymore. And that's what's going to take place in tonight's text. And finally, you can take a million steps away from God, even you can, from God, and it's one step back. At the very last two verses, we're going to see the very end of that 70 years in Babylonian captivity, and now they're returning home. You know, for 70 years, it lay dormant. For 70 years, the temple was gone. For 70 years, the walls of Jerusalem have been torn down. And for 70 years, people would have thought, that's never coming back. Well, here's the good news. Our God is greater, and God brings restoration even to people that it looks like are beyond help. Amen? So let's begin there looking at when the world is bent toward evil, run to Jesus. First of all, fellowship or rebellion, choose one. Then it says, in the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. So while the prophet Jeremiah and all of Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah, when Josiah died, all the people mourned. Matter of fact, they wrote songs about him, and they would sing lamentations because he was a good and a godly king. We know in the end he made, you know, he made some bad choices, but he was a godly man who loved the Lord, who served the Lord. And the people wept, and the people grieved, and they were heartbroken that their king was gone. And you know what? That's a, a wonderful testimony for somebody, that when that person goes to heaven, that people are heartbroken because of the way they ministered to them. Yesterday was the 10-year anniversary of Pastor Chuck Smith going to heaven. Cannot believe it's already been 10 years. And his funeral was at the Anaheim Convention Center, and it was packed. Now, he's just a man, and he would never take credit for anything, but he's a man that God used mightily in a lot of people's lives. And because he, we all, all the pastors, we called him Papa Chuck. He was everybody's grandpa. Called him Papa Chuck. And you know what? I, I've learned so much from him. I, I'm so thankful that I got to spend time with him. Uh, he, he had a memory like nobody's business. There was, there's over 2,000 Calvary chapels. I'd go to the conference. He'd see me 50 feet away. Hey, Dave, God bless you, bro. How's Johnny Nola? That's my parents. How's Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz? I hear great things. How can I pray for you? I'm like, wow, there's 2,000 of us here. How does he remember all those? Plus, he has a church of how many thousands of people? But that was, he had a pastor's heart. And I learned so much from him. He just said, simply teach the word simply. And if you've seen the Jesus revolution, you saw how God mildly used his life. Well, Josiah was that kind of man. When he died, they sang songs about him. They wept for him. Their hearts were broken because he was a good and godly king. But as we say repeatedly, God has no grandchildren. Josiah is a godly man. Doesn't mean his son's going to be. And we're going to find out quickly that he's not. See, every individual is responsible for their own relationship with the Lord. You know, we would love it if every Christian parent had godly kids on fire for the Lord. Wouldn't that be great? We would all love that. And often, and I would say more than all, most often, that is the case, but it's not always the case. And the reason that it's not is they all have, we all have free will. We all make our own choices. And we want to raise them in the best way possible. We want to be a Christ-like example to them. We want to point them to the Lord. But at some point, they have to bow their knee before the King of Kings and repent for their sins and ask for forgiveness and be born again. And it doesn't happen just because you have godly parents. And we'll see that tonight in Josiah. Now look what it says in verse 2. It says, now it says Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king and he reigned how long? Three months. Biden got more than three months. 
Three months. Now, I'm going to tell you why. Because when the nation at that time, you'll remember, how did Josiah die? Bonus points, who remembers? And people ask me why I'm repetitive. An arrow shot by what army? Bonus points. The Egyptians, you remember that? He went out and fought with the Egyptian army. He was going to, they, they wanted him, right? Remember that? He wanted him to align and, and they, they killed him. Pharaoh Necho killed Josiah. He got hit with an arrow and he died. So what happens to him? Okay, he's gone. But guess what happens to Israel at that point, or Judah at that point? They come under the lordship, the oversight of Egypt. And so the Pharaoh is, is really letting them know he's in charge, not them. We defeated you. I'll let you remain as a nation. You can be the king, but you're going to do what I want. And if you stop doing what I want, I'm getting rid of you. And so he starts heavily taxing Israel to show that they're under his submission. And he doesn't like how the king is ruling the people. So after three months, he just takes him captive and drags him off to Babylon. So that's why he only lasted for three months. And he only lasted for three months also because he was not a godly man. Notice what it says. It says in Kings, it doesn't say it here. In 2 Kings, a parallel chapter for this, it says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And isn't it amazing how often we see that with the kings in Judah and Israel? And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's the definition of his life. It doesn't matter what else you do in life. If you do evil in the sight of the Lord, nothing else you do in life in the end will really matter. It won't be worth anything. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care how famous you become. If you're living a life evil in the sight of the Lord, if you're in rebellion against Almighty God, all that you do in this life will mean absolutely nothing. So when a nation is unstable and lacks clear direction, has lost its identity, you're going to see a lot of turnover in leadership. You know, his name means Jehovah has ceased. And he will only reign for three months because, again, the Egyptians had conquered Judah they're the ones calling the shots, and Nacho, the Pharaoh, isn't happy about Jehoahaz being king. Verse 3, now the king of Egypt opposed him at Jerusalem, and he imposed on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. So this is one of the things they did. They would extract money from nations they had conquered. They would make them pay tribute. And it wasn't even necessarily about the money as much as it was to signify we own you. We're your masters. You're our servants. Whatever we ask you for, you give it to us. So Josiah had died in that battle. They've overtaken. Now, 100 talents of silver, that's three and three quarter tons of silver. It's a lot of silver. And then a talent of gold is 75 pounds of gold. Now, the word deposed here, he deposed him. The word in Hebrew means he turned him aside. He removed him. Necho did not believe that Jehoahaz would be, a favorable, would be favorable to Egypt. So he removed him as king. And again, that's why he only lasted three months as king. Guys, when you are doing what is evil on the side of the Lord, you can expect to find the Lord, cannot expect to find the Lord's favor or protection. He's doing what is evil on the side of the Lord. It doesn't surprise me that God allowed him to be taken out. Why? You don't have God's protection when you're walking in open rebellion against God. You cannot shake your fist at God and expect God to protect you and watch over you. 
Now, again, he's a gracious God and a merciful God, but again, we cannot live a life of rebellion against the Lord and think we can walk in fellowship with him at the same time. Now, notice what happens here. Then the king of Egypt made Jehoahaz's brother, Eliakim, king over Judah and Jerusalem, and changed his name to Jehoiakim, and Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him off to Egypt. Now, I don't know what the difference was between these two brothers, but the Pharaoh liked one of them and didn't like the other one. And so he came in, pulled him out as king, and put his brother in place, and then changed his name just because he could. I'm just letting you know I'm in charge of you. If someone changes your name, that's a, that's an, a, that's a power play, isn't it? By the way, your name is now Fred. You know what I mean? <laughs> what I've been Dave my whole life. Not anymore. You're Fred now. That's it. Okay, that means that guy's got authority in your life. And that's exactly what's taking place here as he's taking authority. He was able to dominate Judah. You know, it's interesting that a Jehoiakim means Jehovah raises up. It's actually a godly name. And his, his name, Eliakim, meant God raises and God sets up. The practice of changing another person's name was done to show the person who's in charge. And so the Pharaoh was able to dominate Judah. He made them a buffer against the growing Babylonian empires. Here's what's taking place. Egypt is on this end. In the middle is Judah and Israel. Unto the north is Babylon. So what's taking place, the Babylonians are growing like crazy. They have the greatest empire on earth now. The Egyptians have taken them as a buffer. Hey, we got this land between us and them. I can add these people to our army, and we can be better prepared to fight against Babylon. Well, we know what's going to happen. Babylon's going to wipe them out. God's people had been delivered for 430 years of bondage in Egypt, and it had happened hundreds of years earlier. And when you think about it, now they're back in bondage to Egypt. So they were in bondage to Egypt for 430 years. How did they get delivered? They cried out to God. And God, what did he do? He brought Moses, right? The plagues and the Passover. They were delivered out of bondage. Then God gave them a land of promise. And because they, you know, were faithless and didn't enter in, that 11-day journey turned into a 40-year death march where every person above the age of 20 dropped dead. And then they were able to enter in. And the only two people that entered in were the faithful spies who said we can win. That's Joshua and Caleb. So 430 years, they're in bondage. Now they've had hundreds of years in the land of promise. And because of the rebellion, the Lord took the land of promise away from them. And they're back in bondage to Egypt yet again. What a picture of the world. You know, we can be born again, new creations in Christ. We're, no, we're in the world, but not of it. But as believers... We can get into a place where our relationship with the Lord is not where it used to be. And we may, what we used to call in the 70s, backslide. Backslider, you're backsliding. I would always picture someone sliding on a mud hill on their back. You're backsliding. Or you walk away from the Lord. Or you're walking in a time of rebellion. And not everybody who rebels is an unbeliever. We can have times of rebellion and times where, where we, you know, we're walking in rebellion against God and we're convicted about it, but we continue in it. And that can happen in the life of every believer. But the good news is that if we're truly saved, that conviction will bring us back. Well, sadly, they've been right, brought right back to the world where they once were in bondage. Why? Because king after king after king after king and generation after generation after generation, for the most part, with few good ones in between, had been rebelling against God. And it got to the point where the Lord said, okay, fine, I'll just give you back to the world. Go back to Egypt. That's fine. That's where you're going to end up. And he's going to allow the temple to be destroyed and everything else. Now, none of this is God's fault. It's all man's fault. And so he delivered them from Egypt 
Then they, when they cried out to God, now that they have rebelled against God, have let go uh, or let go back into Egyptian bondage yet again. Then it says there in verse four, then the king of Egypt, he made him and it says his name and Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him to Egypt. It's at that time that the Lord gave a prophecy to Jeremiah regarding Jehoahaz, back in Jeremiah chapter 22, and it said he was going to die in captivity. So it said that about him long before he was born, and it's exactly what takes place. These are all over the Bible, by the way. It says in Jeremiah 22, but he shall die in a place where they have led him captive, and he shall see this land no more. Josephus, he's, a, he's not a biblical writer, but he is a contemporary writer who was not a believer. And he wrote that Nico carried away Jehoahaz into Egypt where he died when he had reigned there, when he had reigned three months and 10 days. So he was walking in the world and he dies in the world. And as believers, who we die with is who we'll spend eternity with. Who we have a relationship with in this life, be it the Lord or be it the world, that's where we're going to spend our eternity. Do you have a relationship with the Lord? Do you walk in intimate fellowship with the Lord? Is he more than just your Savior, but the Lord of your life? Because you're going to spend eternity with the one that you follow in the here and now. Verse 5, Jehoiakim was 25 when he became king. So this is his brother. By the way, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and then Jehochin. Those could be your grandkids. You're not going to remember the orders of those people. And so if I mess it up, it just shows I'm fallible. Y'all know that anyway. But the point is, thanks, bro. You could have left his name what it was, Eliakim. That would have been a little easier. So it says he was 25 years. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did what? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, this guy right here, I want to shake him like every other guy. But can you imagine the world around you is crashing down? You've already been defeated by the Egyptians. The Babylonians are up on the other side coming down upon you. You've seen that everything is amok. Everything is falling apart. Even as the king, you're really being overseen by the Pharaoh of Egypt. Wouldn't this be a good time to cry out to God right about now? Wouldn't it be that when you're in the most difficult times of your life, isn't that when you cry out to the Lord the loudest? One of the prayers I pray for people, and I pray it even for myself, I've prayed it for my family for years, Lord, do what's necessary to keep us humble, broken, and desperate. And you know what keeps us humble, broken, and desperate more than anything else? Being in a place where you can't fix it, and you can't change it, and you can't do it, and only God can, and you have to cry out to him, and Lord, please. And no doubt there's people, I know some of you right now are in this room that are in that situation because I have your prayer requests and I'm praying for you every day. And, I, and, and look, I go through it with the death of my son. There's things where you look and you go, Lord, I wish I could fix that, but I can't. And when we see we're in that position, we cry out to God. And that's what should have been taking place here. Instead of crying out to God, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. How's that working out? How'd that work out for your brother? He's in, he's in bondage in Egypt and he died. How's that working out when you decide to walk away from God and live according to the flesh and take after the things of the world, and yet they continue to do it? And this is what frustrates me. It reminds me of so many of us today. Let me just share this with you because, you know, this world is falling down all around Judah. They're under Egyptian rule. And again, he should have been crying out in repentance. And he's in a spot, there's in a spot there because of idolatry, because he had chosen 
uh, they're chosen, God's chosen people, and they have God's commandments. What are the first two commandments? What are they? No other gods before me, and no graven image. And what was the biggest sin that took place all the time? Idols. Idols, 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 idols. And here they are with idols. And again, they were blessed during reigns of godly kings and consequences and righteous judgment from God when they rebelled against him. And here we are in the midst of God's judgment upon them as a nation and Judah on the verge of complete destruction. And instead of crying out repenting, he does evil in the sight of the Lord. And sadly, the same thing is happening today, even amongst many confessing Christians. People know what God's word says. I'm talking about believers now, or at least professing believers. We know, what God's, we know God's character. We know his love for us, that he sent his son to suffer and die for us. But some of us allow our fleshly desires to overrule God's commands and God's will for our lives. And then consequences come. Instead of repenting, we continue in or we double down on that behavior. As a pastor, I'm just going to be real transparent with you. One of the things that breaks my heart so much is when I'm talking to somebody and they're clearly in open rebellion and I'm, I'm pleading with them, please, you need to get right with the Lord again. Please, this is going to destroy you. Please don't do this. And then they do it anyway. And then it destroys them. One example that always comes to mind, there was a guy in our church in Santa Cruz a long time ago. And he was married, his wife had two beautiful daughters, and he had another daughter on the way. He was a police officer. And so he was coming to our church for years, and then his wife shows up in my office one day and says, can I talk to you? My husband reconnected with his high school sweetheart on social media, and he came home and announced to me that he's leaving me, and he's going back with her. So I called him. He came into the office in his uniform with his gun. I was ready for heaven. But he came in. And I just said to him, bro, what are you? He goes, I just feel, I go, I don't care about your feelings. Just stop with your feelings. Don't bring up your feelings in front of me. Feelings lie to you all the time. Amen? I didn't want to hear it. Stop it. And he's like, well, that's not right. I said, bro, what you're doing is ungodly. It's rebellious. Let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to go run off with this trollop because that's what she is if she's going to hang out with you. By the way, is she married to, oh, you're both going to leave your spouses. Okay, God's, and she's a confessing Christian. Yeah, that, God's really going to bless that. Let's see how that works out. So here's what's going to happen. You're going to run off with this woman. It won't last. And what's going to happen is you're going to lose your wife and your three, your three children, the one that's on the way. Your wife's pregnant, bro. And this, I'm, this is how I'm talking to him. I'm so frustrated I can't see straight. I'm ready to knock out a, pol, a, a police officer in Jesus' name. But he, and I'm like, what are you doing? I said, here's what's going to happen. God's going to bring a godly man to your wife because she's a godly woman. And those three kids are all going to be calling that man daddy. And your relationship with this woman is going to be a disaster because God's not going to bless it when you're both disobeying him. And you're going to be back in my office, sitting in this chair in six months, a year, two years, or five years, weeping and saying, what in the world have I done? And bro, you don't have to do it. And he went home and hung out with his wife for a couple more months. And they came in for counseling and he repented. And then one day she came in and said, he moved up far away. He's with that woman now. They got divorced. Sure enough, she got remarried. Guess what? All those kids are calling that man daddy. He's a godly man. And guess what happened to that relationship? I'll give you one guess. It lasted about three months and it fell apart. And sure enough, that man was back in my office going, what in the world have I done? See, 
That's what the Lord is doing with us. Amen? The Lord shakes us sometimes. We need to be shaken. What are you doing? And that's what I would say to this king. What in the world are you doing? You've seen the disaster all around you. You've seen the effects of what your brother did. You've seen what's happened to your nation. And you're the guy in charge. And you're God's chosen people. And this is the choice that you're making. God suffers long, but he won't suffer always. Amen? It grieves the heart of God. And it's just so heartbreaking when we see this happening. So when the world is crashing down all around you, run to the Lord. Don't run from him. And again, conviction is, a God's, is one of God's ways, the main way that God draws you back. Why does he convict us? Just so we'll feel bad? Why does he convict? Who convicts us, by the way? Holy Spirit. So when he convicts you, what is, what is he prompting you to do? Repent. Get right with God. He's, hey, this is, my, this is my Holy Spirit head slap. That's how it feels when I sit. There it is, right? Hey, Dave. Yes, Lord. You know, okay, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I'm sorry. Right? Get right with the Lord. And it's so tragic that we fall into this trap now where there's believers who just think, well, I got my get a hell free card. I'm going to heaven. I got, my, I got it in my wallet. I love the Lord. And, you know, yeah, I've got this one sin over here I like to hang on to. But, you know, don't be busting my gig. You know, the rest of my life's pretty good. I'm hanging on to that. You're walking in rebellion. It's time to repent. Amen? Hardened hearts do not respond to conviction. Jehoiakim does not repent in light of all the consequences. Instead, he does evil in the sight of the Lord. Let's see how that's going to work out. Just like me telling this, this man, this is what's going to happen. I've been a pastor a long time. I'm telling you right now, God's not going to bless this. God's not going to honor this. This is going to be a disaster. Don't do it. Does it anyway. Heartbreaking. Well, Jeremiah 36, it describes the ungodliness of Jehoiakim. See, you know what I love about the Bible? The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So when we say he did evil in the sight of the Lord, that kind of leaves it pretty random. Well, if you go to Jeremiah, who is a contemporary... He describes his ungodliness, how he burned a scroll of God's word in response to Jeremiah giving him the word of God. Now, his dad, Josiah, when he got the word, he read it to everybody. It convicted him. He reestablished worship. He reestablished temple sacrifices. He gets the word of God. He shreds it and throws it in the fire. That's a whole new level of rebellion. Amen? Not only am I not going to read it, I'm not going to let anybody else read it. I'm not going to share it with anybody else. It says, and you shall say, this is Jeremiah 20, 36, 22 to 24. And you shall say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll saying, why have you written in it? that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and cause men and beasts to cease from here. Therefore, thus says the Lord God concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one sit on the throne of David and his dead body shall be cast out in the heat of the day and the frost of the night. You know why he threw it away? He threw it away because the word of God said that Babylon was going to take them captive. Now, if I read in the Bible that the United States was going to be taken captive because of our rebellion. You know what I would do? I would pray and get on my face before God to be as faithful as I can until it happens. Amen? And instead, he burns it up. By the way, you can burn up God's word. It doesn't cease to be true. You can never read the Bible, and it's still true. It's not what you believe or what you think. It's what the word of God says. Verse, verse number six, Nebuchadnezzar. Hey, who knows who that guy is? 
What do we know him from? Daniel. Daniel. We're gonna, now, so when we finish Revelation here in a couple weeks, we're going to go to Daniel, and we're going to get a good dose of Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar, uh, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him in bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. So between verses 5 and 6, guess what happened? Egypt's not in charge anymore. Babylon is. The Egyptians who were ruling and reigning over them, they've gotten kicked to the curb. Here comes Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. We can look in other portions of scripture where it talks about the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was a prince at the time. He wipes the Egyptians out, and now he's going to rule and reign over the people of Judah. Now, initially, the Babylonians did things a little different than the Egyptians. What they would often do is just make sure they had oversight over the king. They would tax them, and they would take the most valuable things from them. And so as Nebuchadnezzar begins to reign, he puts the king in fetters. Fetters is chains. We talked about this. Bronze fetters. So they chain him up by the feet and often by the hands, and they're dragging him off you know, all hundreds and hundreds of miles off to Babylon. He's being taken away into captivity. And so Jehoiakim was serving the Egyptians, but after the Babylon, Babylon defeated the Egyptians at Karshemesh, we find that in 2 Kings 24, Nebuchadnezzar now begins to exert his influence over the kingdom of Judah. And Jehoiakim's refusal to repent and continue in evil is going to lead to his destruction. Josephus, again, the writer wrote, now, a little time afterwards, the king of Babylon made an expedition against Jehoiakim, who he received into his city, and this out of fear of foregoing predictions of this prophet, supposing that he should suffer nothing that was terrible because he neither shut the gates nor fought against him. Here's what happened. Babylon came, and it says, it says in Jeremiah, it was prophesied that they would come and they would overthrow, and he didn't even shut the gates. So they stopped the water up. They walked through the bottom of the water to get into the, to Jerusalem. And then the gates weren't open. They walked right in and they wiped them all out. Now it says right there in the text, it tells us, if you, hey, that Bible you burned, if you had read that, you might've been ready for that attack because it told you it was coming. And you know, isn't it amazing how the word of God does that? It prepares us and tells us what's coming. That's why I love prophecy so much. Verse seven, Nebuchadnezzar also carried off some of the articles of the house of the Lord of Babylon and put them in the temple of Babylon. So here's what they do. This is the first captivity. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to come three times into Jerusalem. And they're years apart. And the first time he comes, he takes some of the riches with him. He takes the things out of the temple with him, some of the things out of the temple. And he takes some of the wisest people. Included in that first captivity is a man by the name of Daniel. Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, also known in the Bible as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they are carried away. And then what they would do in Babylon is they would indoctrinate them with their religion, with their way of life, change their language, change their name, try to indoctrinate them, and then have them be uh, something they can use to further their kingdom because they only took the best, the most bright, the most talented, the most gifted. And they didn't just take the real sharp guys. We're going to see later they took 7,000 craftsmen. They took 1,000 smiths. They took a bunch of construction work. So they brought all these people. And then they also brought all the best of their warriors. So the Babylonians at overthrowing them, what they're doing is they're trying to get the best they have to assimilate and become Babylonians. 
And they're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. And even when they're let go, many of them won't leave Babylon. They'll just stay there. Guys, we are not to be assimilated to the world. Amen? We're to be in the world, but not of it. We minister to the world, but don't have fellowship with it. And we shouldn't live our lives to please the world, but to please God. So in this first captivity, again, they took over. There were three waves of invasion. Again, what's interesting to me, their biggest sin was idolatry. And nobody was bigger idolaters than the Babylonians. And it's amazing how sometimes there's a sin you struggle with, and then God will just, okay, fine, just go, go do that, and we'll see how that works out. Now, I would never suggest this, but I remember when I was a kid, I remember several people telling me this. I never had it because I never did it. But like, one of my friends got caught smoking when he was like 13. He was in eighth grade. And his parents caught him. So his dad went down to the store, bought a carton of cigarettes, and set his tail down and made him smoke cigarettes one right after another until he puked all over the floor. Guess what? Never wanted to smoke again, right? And what I'm saying is like sometimes we get so caught up in this simple behavior that the Lord goes, well, okay, if that's what you want. And what happens is you get to see all the consequences that come from just letting yourself go and run in that direction to the sinful behavior. They were worshiping idols and he turns them over to the biggest idolatry, uh, idolatrous nation on the planet. And you know what's interesting? It actually cured them because after their Babylonian captivity, the Israelites never worshiped idols ever again. But God allowed them. This is the sin you want. This is the behavior you want. Go worship the idols in Babylon. Let's see how that works out. You would have think in 430 years in Egypt, with all the idolatry around them, would have cured them, but sadly, it did not. So idol worshipers were taken captive, and again, being filled with idolatry. But there were a few, there were a few young men that didn't stand up for the idols, right? Daniel chapter 3, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. We'll see that soon. So Nebuchadnezzar was carried off. Some of the articles, verse 8. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, and the abominations which he did. That's not, okay, if, if people are describing you and they said he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and oh, by the way, and the abominations that he did, that's not good. You don't want to be that guy on judgment day, standing before Almighty God, which he did. He was found against him. Indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Then Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. So we went from Jehoiakim, to Jehoiachin. Before that, we, uh, we had, uh, we already see Jehoahaz. Man, headache, okay? So each of these men have been reigning, and each one of them, sadly, is proving to not be one who is standing for the things of God. And again, there's more details about Jehoiakim written in the book of Kings, a man who did evil, who was not submitted to the Lord, and the end result, he's going to die at the hands of Babylonian idolaters. Point number two there was when the world is crashing down all around, you run to the Lord, not from him. So he was surrounded. He was in a tough position. He could have run to God and I believe God would have delivered him, but God already knew what he was going to do. It had already been prophesied in Jeremiah and sure enough, he had been faithless. Point number three there, without repentance, there is no restoration. Look at verse nine. Jehoiachin was eight years old. Now in Kings, it says 18. It's one of the rare places in Scripture where somebody probably left off a one when they transcribed it. Now, people see stuff like this and it gets them a little upset. Let me clue you in. Let me encourage you with something. First of all, it's got the accurate thing in Kings. And second of all, there's so few of these that when we point it out, people are astonished because there aren't, okay? 
So he, I believe he was 18 years old. It says 18 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem. How long? Three months. There's no stability. The kings are coming and going. And why is that? Because nobody's honoring the Lord. Because everyone's doing what is right in his own eyes. Look what it says there. Three months, and he did what? He did what? Evil in the sight of the Lord. So he's seen two of his brothers taken away. And now here he is, and he does the exact same thing. It'd be like if you had two brothers got out on the freeway and were riding their motorcycles at 200 miles an hour and they both died. And then you went and bought a motorcycle and started doing the same thing. Foolishness. Are you ever going to learn? But this is the hard heart of man. And then it says in verse 10, and at the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned him and took him to Babylon with costly articles from the house of the Lord and made Zedekiah, Jerichim's brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem. So this is the second captivity. The first one took place in 597 BC. Now this one takes place in 605 BC, according to the prophet Ezekiel, who was one of the priests at the time. And its ministry foretold of what was going to take place. Josephus records this, but a terror seized on the king of Babylon who had given the kingdom to Jehoiachin and that immediately he was afraid that he should bear him a grudge because of killing his father. See, what happens is when he became king, Nebuchadnezzar had killed his dad. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, yeah, that guy's probably not going to like me. That guy's probably going to want revenge. So he takes him away too. See, again, all this is taking place because of their ungodliness. In 2 Kings, it says the city was besieged by Nebuchadnezzar and Jehoiachin and all his family were taken captive, as were those, again, who were serving the king well. Jehoiachin reigned only three months. Nebuchadnezzar, again, feared he would seek revenge and judgment came because he did evil in the sight of the Lord. We don't see anybody acting godly in this whole chapter. Not till the very end with King Cyrus, who's, not, who's a pagan, right? But he, as we see this, we repeat the same, and we look in the world around us right now, and we have the same problems because people keep doing the same things and expect it's going to be different for them. And that's the lie of the devil that your sin is different than everyone else's. Well, yeah, they all have that problem, but I'm not going to have that problem. I can drink, and I won't have a problem, get a DUI, and then you get a DUI. I can cheat on my wife, it's not going to destroy, it destroys your marriage. I can do these things and we'll do all these things. We'll follow that pattern. And tragically, again, we don't, we're not listening to the heart of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to take the best, brightest, and most gifted to serve him in Babylon, to indoctrinate them into their pagan beliefs. And Satan is still doing the same things today. Remove Bible from the schools. I want to, as parents and grandparents and future parents, can I encourage you? I get it. If you have to go to college for a certain reason, go to college. But I would really encourage you to do everything you can to go to a Christian college. Because we're going to take and be, in, and I've seen so many young people that love the Lord, they go away to school, they get indoctrinated eight hours a day by the most liberal, left-wing, lost, godless people on the planet. I wouldn't let, I wouldn't let a person like that babysit my child for 15 minutes. I'm certainly not going to give them four years and $600,000 to indoctrinate my kids. Amen? There's got a bunch of people mad at me, and that's okay. But the reality is, 
we need godly kids more than we need anything else. Amen? And if it's at all possible, put them in a godly environment. Because sadly, you know, you just see the indoctrination taking place all the time. We got a lot of people in our church right now. Their kids went away to college, were on fire. They came home rejecting God, deny he exists, want nothing to do with them. And again, we want to put people in the best environment possible. By the way, we have a college, we have a, a young adults Bible study. Go to that. Be, you know, go to a place where you can be encouraged in your faith. So they took these costly articles out of the house of the Lord on the second attack against Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar, took whatever valuables remained in the temple and in the royal palaces of Jerusalem. Palaces of Jerusalem. The fall of Jerusalem didn't come in one cataclysmic event. Again, it took place in three stages. The initial stage was 605 BC. The second stage was 598 BC. And then the final stage will take place in 597 BC. So they're just taking them out one group at a time. And eventually he's going to get frustrated and he, then he's just going to level Jerusalem. Going to tear it all down. There's going to be nothing left of it. And, who, and all the people that are left are going to be carried into captivity. So, point number three without rep, repetition, repentance, excuse me, there is no restoration. And we see that Jehoiakim short lived, didn't repent, unsuccessful. It all fell apart. Point number four regardless of the reason you choose to reject God, the re results will be the same. Look at verse 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. So Zedekiah becomes king. And since Nebuchadnezzar had completely humbled Judah, he put a king on the throne that he thought would submit to Babylon. He chose this uncle of Jehoiachin, who was actually the brother of Jehoiakim. And Nebuchadnezzar wanted a king in place that he could control. So he's saying, look, if I have to have a king, I'm going to find somebody that will do what I want. Now, Zedekiah's name means Jehovah is righteous. And we're going to see that he's going to change his name. And he's going to change it. And again, it's one of those boss moves. Nebuchadnezzar likes this move. He likes to do this just to let people know he's in charge. Notice what it says in verse 12. He did what in the sight of the Lord? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. So Jeremiah comes to him when he becomes king. Hey, seen the last few kings? How'd that work out? All related to you, they're all gone, been taken away captive. Now you're the new king. Here's what you need to do. Obey God. Honor the Lord. Don't fall into the same trap they did. Don't leave your wife for your high school girlfriend on social media. Don't do it. Learn from it. And Jeremiah looks him in the eye, speaks to him the word of God, and he says, yeah, no, nah, I'm not doing that. I'm going to go my own way. We're all idiots compared to God. Amen? When God tells us what to do, we obey the Lord. We don't even have to understand why God tells us. We don't, even have, we don't want to question it, doubt it, just do it. Amen? The Lord told me, I'm going to honor the Lord. Now, Zedekiah inherits a very reduced Judah because by this point, the army's been weakened because he's taken a lot of the best soldiers away. The intellect within Judah, a lot of them are taken away. The temple itself has been, basically most of the stuff in the temple has been taken away. All the riches in the, in the home of the king, taken away. And so he's got the shell of what once was Judah, and his only hope of survival is to repent on behalf of himself and the nation. Cry out to the Lord. Instead, 
He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not repent, but continued the ungodly and rebellious behavior that had brought destruction and captivity to the land. And Zedekiah will prove to be one of the most despicable men who's ever lived. And here he is, ruling and reigning over God's people. This is why somebody in authority doesn't mean that that person is good or godly. Amen? We take everything and everyone against the word of God. Now, we respect those in authority over us until we recognize that they're acting contrary to the Lord. During Zedekiah's reign, the life of the prophet Jeremiah was in constant danger, as were all the prophets. The word of God brought to Zedekiah, unlike Josiah, he tore up God's word and threw it into the fire. The prophets, the things of God, the word of God were all disregarded and treated without reverence, but with disdain. And during the entire 11 year reign of Zedekiah. So here he is, anything godly, he wanted nothing to do with it. Anything to do with them, he got rid of it. And boy, I just feel like that is California. Amen. Anything godly, want to quiet it. When was the last time we heard anybody in a position of authority talk about the Lord? It should happen every day, amen? And we're shocked when it happens. And we're living in a time when education is, has hatred towards God, a lot of it, right? When the politicians have a hatred towards God, everybody's turning away from the Lord. And you know what? They can take the Bibles away, they can take the word of God down, but they can't shut us up, Amen? We can stand up and speak for the things of God. And sadly, we see that Zedekiah, this man of rebellion, notice it says again in verse 12, he humbled not himself before Jeremiah. So he hears the word of the Lord and he doesn't care. He rejects it right out. Regardless of why you reject the Lord, the results are the same. Fearing men instead of, no, we, we read this in uh, other accounts that it says, Josephus says that Zedekiah, when Jeremiah spoke to him, he believed it. Josephus says this. Now it's an extra biblical writer. He said that he believed it, and he thought it would be an advantage if he obeyed it, but then he allowed the people around him to pervert his way of thinking and to not do it. So when he heard it, he said, that sounds good. That sounds right. I've seen all the destruction. But then when the people around him are like, bro, we're not doing that. No, we're going to do this. You're in power now. We can do what we want. And he listened to men instead of listening to God. And that's the same problem that we've all had at some point in our life where we listen to the counsel of men instead of faithfully following the Lord. Can I get an amen to that? You hear what the world says. You hear it enough. You can become, you know, complacent to it, and you can fall into that trap. So Josephus said that Jeremiah came to him often. He exhorted him to heed the word of God, to turn away from his wickedness, to not listen to the ungodly counsel of the false prophets. But it said, now Zedekiah himself, while he heard the prophets speak, he believed him and agreed with everything that was true and believed it would be for his good and the good of the nation. But then his friends perverted him, dissuaded him from what the prophet advised and got him to do what pleased them. Later, Ezekiel prophesies about Zedekiah and talks about how he is going to die. Both, Zed, he was, both Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied about how this man would die. Again, Zedekiah himself is going to live contrary to what God commands. Verse 13, and it says there, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not humble himself. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by an oath by God 
But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. So now he's rebelling against everyone. Now, rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar, okay, we're going to see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do that. Amen? They're going to rebel against him. But here's what it says in that verse. He was stiff-necked towards the Lord. And again, pray fervently. We have so many people in some relationship to this church. Maybe they don't fellowship here, but they give us prayer requests. We have so many prodigal sons and daughters, it's tragic. Where they want nothing to do with God. They were raised in Christian homes. They have godly parents who pray for them fervently. And they're so far away from God. They want nothing to do with God. They curse God's name. They mock his name. I went to one person's house with Pastor Joshua. And the daughter literally tore her Bible into shreds and threw it in the fireplace in front of us. And we see this all around us. And there's this stiff-neckedness. There's this hardening of heart. It's the enemy at work. Amen? And we need to pray that God will bring uh, conviction and draw these people back into himself. Jeremiah tells us that there were many false prophets in those days who preached a message of victory and triumph to Zedekiah, and he believed them instead of Jeremiah and other, other godly prophets. Therefore, he rebelled against the king. He thought he could overthrow the king. Dude, he's got your army. How deluded are you? And you've heard from God's man that that's not going to work out well for you. And yet, he does it anyway. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So he stiffened his neck. He hardened his heart. Lord, give us soft and tender hearts toward the Lord. Amen? Verse 14. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests transgress more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defile the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. It's not just the politicians and the people in authority. Now, the spiritual leaders have turned away from God. Now, the ones that are supposed to represent God to the people and the people to God, the ones that were supposed to make the sacrifices, the ones that were supposed to be teaching the word of God, they too have turned themselves over to the abominations. There's a well-known pastor who just this last week had a conference where he can, he's saying homosexuality is not a sin. And he even said about the word of God, well, this is just, you know, some of it's man's opinions. It's filled with contradictions. And we really even, shouldn't even read the Old Testament anymore. And you sit there and your head, I, my head wants to explode. What in the world? I'll just say it. He said it out loud. Andy Stanley, Charles Stanley's son. Can you imagine? But this is happening in churches all over America where what's happening is people are being so influenced by the culture and they don't spend enough time reading God's word that before you know it, they question the word of God instead of doubting what the culture's doing. Amen? God's word is always the authority. And it is so, so, so tragic. And what happens to, to Zedekiah, he listens to the world instead of listening to the Lord. And now even the, the spiritual leaders... You know what this means? In Judah, basically, there's nobody serving God anymore. Nobody. They've all abandoned the Lord. They're all walking in open rebellion against God. There's not even a remnant left for the most part. There are going to be some like Daniel and others, but most of them had already been carried away captive. So point number four there, regardless of the reason you choose to reject God, the revolts remain the same. Fearing men instead of fearing God and trusting God will lead to destruction. So they were more, he was more influenced by what his friend said, and now even the spiritual leader called to lead God's people were now walking in rebellion. Is it any wonder that God brought righteous judgment? 
There's nobody left for the most part. There's going to be a small remnant that's not even listed here. People like Daniel, but he's been taken away captive. Point number five, there is no remedy for rejecting God's word and God's grace. There's no fix. If you reject God's word and reject God's grace, there is nothing to save you. You cannot be saved apart from the word of God and the grace of God and his redemptive work on the cross of Calvary. There's nothing else that can save you. Amen? So if you reject that, you're headed to destruction. Notice what it says here in verse 15. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. What a gracious God we serve. Amen? Everything I just read to you, God still sends another messenger to say, hey guys, it's not too late to get right. Hey guys, he's got a heart for them. Notice, I love that it's early in the morning, which men had a sense of urgency. Go wake them up and tell them it's still not too late to get right with the Lord. And that's the message we should be sharing today with everyone we talk to. Amen? Notice it says there in verse 15, because he had compassion on his people, God yearned for sinful and rebellious Judah, like a man has sleepless nights concerned about his children. You know the people that God sent to speak to them? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Habakkuk, all brought warnings. So that all these godly people came and warned them, Look, this is where you're headed. Don't do it. This is where you're headed. This is what's going to happen. Please don't. Here's what the word of God says. God's showing them grace upon grace. And the sad thing is that the heart of man is perverse and wicked above all things. And unless we repent, we're going to just continue down the trail that leads to destruction. Verse 16. Now, what did they do? So they listened to the messengers. They repented, got right with God, rebuilt the temple, and God brought a great awakening, and there was revival in the land. Is that what it says? They mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God arose against his people till there was no remedy. Now, that's a verse in your Bible you should underline. Notice the three things. They mocked the messenger. So people came. How many, who likes to be mocked? Wake up in the morning going, hope I get mocked today. No. But mocking is one of the most disrespectful things that could happen to you. Where you're just engaging somebody and they just start mocking you. Well, they mocked the messengers of God. So guess what? If they mocked the messengers of God in the Bible, don't be surprised if they mock you for being a messenger of God. Amen? When you talk to people about the Lord, people are going to mock you. They're going to tell you things that are just ridiculous. I had a, a gal not too long ago say, Jesus didn't even exist. I'm like, my college professor, your college professor is an idiot. That's not very nice. Okay, well, I don't have no other way to say it. When you deny the existence, you know what I said to her? What year is it? 2023. 2023 years since What? I don't know. Since Jesus Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, anybody who says Jesus didn't exist has got their head in the sand and are, just, are absolutely lost their minds. Now, this is what, we, we're going to be mocked for being messengers of God because somebody else told them something and God sent all these messengers to them and they didn't listen. They mocked them. Not only mocked the messengers, they despised his words. They hated the word. 
They hated the words that came from the messengers. When they told them that they needed to repent, they hated it. They got angry at it. Now, one of the things you will see on social media sometimes, like you'll see someone on campus sharing their faith. They'll be sitting at a a desk or something, or they'll be standing up with a microphone and they'll be trying to engage people. There's one guy I really like because he has a great way of like turning people around and doesn't cause a lot of strife. Uh, He's an older guy, he's a pastor, and he just goes on college campuses and does this all the time. But a lot of times you'll see people and they are downright losing their minds because somebody's speaking the Bible. They want to throw stuff at them. They get angry. They're getting violent. They're tearing their signs down. They're attacking them. Why? Because the word of God brings conviction. And when you're convicted, you either repent or you get angry because you don't like it. You want to silence the messenger. You want to tell the person that's saying the thing that bothers you to be quiet and to keep it to yourself. So they not only, again, mocked the messenger, but they despised his words, and then they scoffed at the prophets. So the prophets were bringing forth truth, things that would rescue these people from eternity separated from God, and they scoffed at them. This is tragic, triple rejection of God's message and his messengers seals the doom of Judah. This is it right here. This is where the, this is it. Notice what it says. So after they'd done that, mocked the messengers, despised the words, Scoff the prophets until what? The what? The wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Here's what he's saying. The wrath of God was so strong that that's it. We're done. There's no more escape. There's no more remedy. I've done everything I can. I've sent all these prophets to you. I've sent the word of God to you. I've shown you examples. I showed you compassion. I tried to reach out to you. And now it's over. And this is the thing that I also hear a lot when I talk to people who are unbelievers. They'll say, what kind of loving God would send people to hell? And we all know that God doesn't send people to hell. We choose to go there by rejecting the Lord. It's our fault, not his. He desires that none should perish, no, not one. Amen. But they'll use that example and, or, they'll, or they'll give you some excuses to why they don't believe in the Bible. They can, they'll say, well, I had a friend that this happened to 15 years ago. I don't care. Where are you at with Jesus? What does the Bible say? And how are you going to respond to it? Where did Cain get his wife? That doesn't matter. Where are you at with Jesus right now? Right? They'll try to find something, right? And again, we can answer that. He had a lot of brothers and sisters, okay? But here's the thing is that people get to a point where they just want an excuse to not have to be accountable. And that's what's happened here. Now the Lord says, okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm done. Now, the wrath of God is not like our wrath. And what I mean by that, God's wrath can come with anger. We see that in Revelation, where there's some anger there. It's righteous anger. But he's not flying off the handle and he's not out of control. When you think of a man being wrathful, you think of out of control, losing his temper. The Bible says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Amen? Now, this is my own definition of the wrath of God. So this is just mine, okay? I, I, this Years ago when I was a youth pastor, I was trying to explain it to kids, and I told it a whole, it's a holy and consistent reaction to that which is contrary to the will, nature, and commands of God. It's a holy and consistent reaction. He's not flying off at the handle, right? That's not how God works. God is faithful and in control, but there comes a point where he suffered long. He's not going to suffer anymore, and here comes the righteous judgment of God, Holy, consistent reaction to that which is contrary to the nature, will, or commands of God. Now, look at verse 17. We're almost done here. It says, therefore, 
He brought against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary and had no compassion on the young men or the virgin or the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. So what does he do? When he brings his wrath, he doesn't necessarily... Now, in Revelation, we see him having an angel come out, just, you know, wipe them out. He, has, he comes with an army and he wipes them out. But in this case, he just brings one of their enemies. Okay, come on down here. And all these people have rebelled. They've all mocked. They've all hardened their hearts. There's no more remedy. Righteous judgment is coming. So the Chaldeans come and they literally wipe them out. Notice what it says in verse 18. And all the articles from the house of God, uh, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. Nebuchadnezzar got to the point where he was, he was fed up, and he said, okay, that's it, and so here's what I'm going to do. And he literally burned it all to the ground. Why would he tear down the walls? Why do you think? Because he didn't want anybody to ever go back there and be a force again. He wanted to make sure that if anybody tried to re-establish you know, themselves in Jerusalem, that he could march right in without anything in the way and wipe them out. So he tears everything down. He burns Solomon's temple to the ground. That glorious temple that God gave the vision and the directions to David and Solomon built has now been destroyed. Now, why is that? And I, wanted, I said this at the beginning. That temple only meant something when God's presence was there. When you take God's presence away from it, it's just a building. The same is true with a local church. Again, if God's presence isn't there, if God's word isn't being taught, put some horns in the wall and call it the Elks Club because it's not a church. Amen? And so the reality is that that's the case here. It's like, and, and, and God allowed it. Like, look, they're not worshiping me. They're not walking with me. They're rebelling against me. They're going into Babylonian captivity. It all got burnt to the ground. Now, we're going to see in just a few verses that, again, we'll see it with Ezra, especially Nehemiah, that, that those people are going to go back. That had been in, Many of them were born in captivity, and they're going to go back and do their best to restore it. So they burned the house of God. Ezekiel, God's presence had been removed, it says in Ezekiel, from the temple before the destruction. You read in Ezekiel that says that God's presence is no longer there. Once God's presence is no longer there, it's just a building. And God's presence isn't in some of the people go in and they're in awe of these buildings because they got beautiful tapestries and things on the wall. And again, it's just a monument to what once was a memorial to what God once did. A temple as glorious as it was meant nothing without the faithful worship of God's people and the presence of Almighty God there. Without God's people worshiping in spirit and in truth and the presence of God, again, it's just a building. He broke down the walls of Jerusalem and again, in preparation for what could take place in the future. They're going to have to be rebuilt. Now, what's interesting, I looked it up. It was 424 years three months and eight days since Solomon built the temple until it was destroyed. That's almost the exact amount of time they were in bondage in Egypt. They're in bondage in Egypt all that time they got delivered. Now God had blessed them. And for 424 years, they had the temple and now it's been destroyed. And guess what? They're back in bondage yet again. And whose fault is that? It's not God's fault. It's man's fault. Then it says in verse 20 and 21, and those who escaped from the sword were carried away to Babylon became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the king of Persia. 
to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath er for every 70 years. Now, God is getting his Sabbath from them all at once. Now, the Sabbath law was that you were to have crops for six years and take the seventh year off. And God would always give double production in the sixth year. You were to store it, and for the seventh year, let the ground lay and not plant anything. But what happened for all these years, they just kept working all the way through. Hey, we're making a lot of money. You know, we're doing well. Let's do the seventh year. So for 490 years, they've just been doing every step. They're just doing it. We're going for it. We're not going to stop. Well, guess what? How long were they in captivity? 70 years. Guess what that was? Here's the 70 Sabbaths you never gave me. I'm getting them all at once. So they took, they literally had 70 years of captivity when the ground laid fallow. So once again, it would be fruitful. Israel, again, we know from the end of this, will never worship idols again. And again, it can happen to us, a love of particular sin so much that it separates us from God. Lord, help us. So there's a 70-year gap between verses 21 and 22. Let's read these as we finish off this book. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, you can take a million steps away from God, it's only one step back. King of Persia, the word of the Lord came by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus said Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May the Lord God be with you and let him go up. Isn't it amazing that the godly kings lived in such an ungodly way that the temple was destroyed, and this pagan king is going to send the people back to rebuild the temple? Because God can use even the people of the world to bring about righteous judgment, but he can also use them to bring about righteousness, to bring about the reestablishment of worship of the true and living God. So even in the midst of great rebellion, God still has a plan of redemption. And you know what? A lot of people would have no doubt thought that Jerusalem was done. It would never come back. And we know Jerusalem's going to be done again, isn't it? AD 70. And everybody thought it was gone. And guess what? It came back again. And guess what? There's going to be no more coming back again because the next time there's going to be a new Jerusalem. Amen? So when the world is bent toward evil, run to Jesus. Fellowship or rebellion, choose one. When the world is crashing down all around you, run to the Lord, not from him. Again, he doesn't always rescue us from the fire, but stands with you in it. Without repentance, there is no restoration. Regardless of the reason you choose to reject God, the, the results remain the same. Nobody will be, will have an excuse on the great white throne judgment. Nobody. There is no remedy for rejecting God's word and God's grace, and you can take a million steps away from God. It's only one step back. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We worship you, Lord. We thank you for First and Second Chronicles. What a blessing it's been. We thank you, Lord, and may we apply this to our lives. May we not be satisfied just being like the world. May we be in the world, but not of it. May we bring glory and honor and worship to your name. We praise you and we worship you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said...